Good evening. Tonight's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may be that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This is the word of the Lord. Well, during the Easter season, we talked a lot about this spiritual journey that we call deconstruction and reconstruction. And we said that a lot of times, for most people, you go through a season in your spiritual journey where we put up a flannel graph, that thing we teach our children with, where you take a lot of things off the flannel graph that you were taught as a child, and then you ask, well, what do I believe? Now that I'm an adult and I can believe whatever I want to believe, what do I believe? And then we talked about uh, the importance of putting things back on the flannel graph, that that's part of the life of faith. The first generation of Christians had a massive deconstruction going on. Um, if, if you'll remember, they were mostly Jews, and Jews were distinctive for believing in the one God of Israel. They were monotheists, which made them distinctive from all the other religions of that area. And so being a believer in the one God of Israel was essential to being Jewish. But then they had been spending three years with this man, Jesus Christ, and they had come to believe that he was the Son of God and that he was also divine. And then after Pentecost... They had experienced the Holy Spirit, and they had come to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit was also divine. And so now they were in a major crisis of faith because their whole understanding of who God was was being upended. And they somehow had to put together this idea that there was one God of Israel who existed in three distinct persons and hold both of those together. Now, there's no text in the New Testament that spells all of that out, but the Trinity appears quite often in the pages of the New Testament. And I just wanted to look at a few of those with you. This is Trinity Sunday. The church traditionally, the week after Pentecost, has is remembered the Trinity because it was kind of the first major theological work that the church had to do after Pentecost. So, A couple of places where we find the Trinity in Scripture. The first is in Matthew 3, when Jesus is being baptized. See if you can see the three persons. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God 
descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven, that's the Father, said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all involved in the baptism. And then at the end of the Lord's ministry, when he is sending out the disciples, Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then when Paul is writing the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he says... The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that would be God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Then in Ephesians chapter 4, we read this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Two more. First Peter 1, verse 2. I know it's gross to lick your fingers in front of 100 people, but I can't. Sorry. Peter, an apostle of Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And then the last one is Jude 20. And there we read, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, you don't have any New Testament letter that just spells out the whole doctrine of the Trinity. It took the church years to kind of figure all that out. But for people to say, well, the Trinity isn't in the New Testament is just not true because they already had experienced God in three persons and were writing about it in their literature and you can see this in other letters as well. Well, one of the stories that the early church believed they saw the Trinity in was the Genesis 18 story that, that Sandy read. And this is a, a painting that a, a monk in the 15th century named Andrei Rublev, a Russian monk, painted that has two names. The first name is the hospitality of Abraham to the visitors. And uh, that story is simply of uh, Abraham greeting three angelic-like visitors, showing them hospitality, sacrificing a calf, welcoming them to his table, and then out of that hospitality, the visitors bless them. And so you can see, if, if you look closely enough, some of the details of the Genesis 18 story. Up in the left, you see uh, a house, and that is to represent um, his house, uh, Abraham's house. Then in the middle there, you can see uh, an oak tree, or it doesn't look like an East Tennessee oak, but uh, the, the, it's a little different in the Middle East. And then you can barely make out a mountain uh, on, on the back. And you can see the calf 
uh, in the little bowl on the table there. But this famous icon is also called the Trinity because at the same time that Rublev is painting the three visitors, he is also uh, painting the three members of the Trinity because the early church believed that those three guests foreshadowed those three members. And you know, one of the reasons I wanted to look at this tonight is that the Trinity is a mystery. It's hard to talk about. It can be abstract. And, and this is one way to kind of reflect on the Trinity. The first thing you'll see is that each member at the table is equal in authority. Uh, each one has a rod. You can barely see that. They're in their left hand. That was what a king would hold to show their authority and power. Um, if you notice, they're all sitting kind of in a circle around the table. Um, you'll notice that they each have blue garments on, and blue was the color of divinity. And then you might not be able to see it from there, but each of their faces are identical. So he's showing that the three persons are all of equal uh, authority and value and essence. Now, he also is showing that each person has a different role. Uh, most scholars believe that the Father is on the left, the Son is in the middle, and the Spirit is on the right. The Father's robe is kind of transparent and kind of shimmery, and the idea seems to be there that he is the hidden creator. The Son has a crimson robe and is sitting in front of the cup that also looks a lot like the chalice at the Eucharist. And that robe represents the sacrifice that he will make. And the spirit has a green robe on, and that represents uh, new life and creation. So each of them have different roles. Now, one of the reasons this matters for Christians is that we are created in the image of God, and so to the degree that we can, we want to reflect the, the way God relates within himself in the way that we relate to each other and to the world. And so let's look a little bit and see what uh, the painter was trying to say about how they relate to each other. Look at the gaze of the... Uh, uh, the Father on the left. The Son and the Spirit are both, both mutually deferring to the Father. So there is, there is the Father as sort of the source, as the, the leader. But the Father is then looking humbly and mutually towards the Spirit. And so you have this sense of uh, mutual submission and deference even though there is a leader to whom the other two are looking to. Now, there's not a lot of scriptures that describe the interior life of the Godhead. Uh, the, the two that come closest are Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And Jesus prays uh, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So a very interesting way to describe, it, it's, it's just the Greek word ace, it just means literally to interpenetrate, to, to, to come into. There is a sense in which they are interdependent on one another, they are mutually submissive to one another, they are interrelated. Now, the other verse that talks about the interior life of the Trinity is Philippians chapter 2, and that talks about Christ's role, and Paul says, if Jesus had this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's just about Jesus' role, but it's that idea of sacrificial service to the other members of the the, the triune community. Now, let's think for a moment, what would it look like for your relationships to be like that? What would it look like for our church to be like that? Um, That's that's not an easy uh, question to ask. The Greek theologians were the first to really probe the mysteries of the Trinity, and by the 6th century, they began to describe the Trinity as a circle dance, as a dance. And, you know, I've been thinking about dance lately, and I've, been, been, I've shared this with you a little bit. Sandy and I started to take swing dance lessons last October. We've gone almost every week uh, since then. We go to the Laurel Theater Wednesday night, 7 o'clock, 5 bucks. It's, uh, it's a cheap date. Uh, <laughs> And we are learning how to dance. Now, I don't wear my pastor hat when I'm in there, so people don't know what I do. And one of the things I didn't know is that you don't get to dance with your partner all night. You have to share people. And so that means you dance with other people, other women. And I was a little nervous about that. And sometimes in dance, you're actually supposed to hold people somewhat closely. And one night, the instructor came over, grabbed me, yelled, and said, quit dancing like a Christian. That was kind of (laughs) true story. (laughs) So I was kind of a, you know, know, this is a little awkward here. I don't know you. I can feel your sweat. I don't like this. Honey! Um, True story. Quit dancing like a Christian. Um, But one young lady must know what I do. Her name is... uh, Rose, I think, and uh, she comes out to me one night, and she says, do you understand the implications of dance on the gospel? Which really shocked me, because that wasn't what I was thinking about at the, at the moment. I was <laughs> thinking about stepping on Sandy's feet. And, and she went into this lovely sermon uh, about how dance is a picture of God. Because if you lead dance well, you lead as a servant. If you follow well, you're receptive to the initiative of the leader. There's a lot of trust. If the leader leads selfishly or poorly, he or she, there's not gender in dance, but he yanks the other party around. And when it works beautifully, you can't tell who's leading. I just thought, wow, that is such a powerful picture of, of relationships. Well, honestly... Sandy danced all the way through college, is, is, is incredibly gifted, and has done very well. I, however, um, <laughs> have struggled quite a bit. 
And uh, at one point, we decided in March to go to an all-day-long workshop. And uh, actually, this swing dance thing is a big thing. There were people there from all over the country, uh, several hundred. It's, it's quite a deal. And, and so there was a big dance with a band at night, and I was shooting all year to kind of peek at the dance <laughs> and, you know, just kind of put the move on and really show her a thing or two, and, you know, it was going to be a great night. Well, the workshops were great. I learned a whole lot. Came to the night, and I choked. I just forgot everything that I had learned. It was so embarrassing. I had my little outfit on. I mean, I was really going <laughs> to I was going to do something great. And honestly, I don't know if Sandy knew this, but I considered quitting. And I thought, you know, there's a lot we could be watching The Crown. Isn't that better morally? <laughs> And then going out and trying to learn how to do this. And, and it's been a lot of fun, but we've had, we've had tension as we've tried to learn this. And I think that reminds me of us. That reminds me of relating. I mean, when you see people dance well, it really is a beautiful thing. Watching my daughters dance is, is just one of the great joys of my life. Um, it's beautiful when it's done well. I don't do it well yet. I step on a lot of feet. And a lot of times with you, I feel like I step on your feet, and it it just can be clumsy. But I would encourage us to keep practicing, that it's better than just quitting and going home and watching Netflix. You can always get the crown, you know? So let's keep going. Now, There is something else in this painting that at least one person I read suggested, and I thought it was really profound. I don't know if you can see, there's a little square or a rectangle underneath the the Eucharistic cup. And what some art historians think is that there used to be a mirror there. So that imagine this, so you look at the icon, you see yourself at the table. Now, notice where the, you probably can't see, but the the hands are very important. The Father's hand, the right hand, is blessing the Son. The Son is blessing the Spirit, and the Spirit is pointing towards the empty space, which if there was a mirror there would be you. And essentially inviting us into the life of the Trinity, inviting us to join the dance of the Trinity. Henry Nouwen, the great writer, called the Trinity, uh, actually he wrote a whole book on this icon. It's, I think it's in a museum in, in uh, Kiev, and he spent a week just sitting in front of it and pondering it, and he, he called the, the Trinity the house of love. And the gospel is inviting us into the house of love. There's this silly thing um, at, the, at our dance uh, on Wednesday night. You take lessons first, and then you go practice. And the first thing they do, they call it snowball. And uh, the pros will get out, and there are some people that are professional, and they will get out, and they'll start dancing with just the two of them, and then someone will cry snowball, 
And then the two of them will go grab people in the crowd and add, and they'll cry snowball. Then they'll go add eight until uh, within a few minutes, everybody in the room is in the dance. And I just thought, what a picture of the gospel. Is God's crying, snowball, you know, go grab somebody else and bring them in. Now, everybody doesn't want to come. I often find a great need to go to the bathroom at that point. You know? <laughs> but eventually, someone drags me out there, and it's, 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 it's usually good. So, this idea of the hospitality of God being the driving force of the universe, I think, is very, very compelling. And it, I, I think it's why we're on the planet. And I, I think it's very important to us personally. Uh, and so the rest of the summer, or most of the rest of the summer, I, I thought we'd look at some texts in the Bible from the beginning to the end about hospitality and what that looks like. And, and I, I'd like you to just check on the side what you think already about hospitality, right? Because we all have an image of hospitality. My kids swam forever. There was a hospitality tent. And it meant terrible food and drinks on very hot days. It wasn't a positive thing. So check out, put away what you think of as hospitality. Let's start exploring together what hospitality means. Um, I want to end with a story I've told you before. But it's real important to just kind of how I think about us. Um, When I was about 40, uh, before the church was... uh, was going here. It was kind. Of, it was in the Holbrook's basement. You may not know, but uh, there was a prayer meeting for many months in the Holbrook's basement that uh, All Souls kind of came out of, and Cedar Springs seated it there. Um, well, that was going on even before I got involved with it. I was I was going through a real hard time. It was a dark night of the soul. It was a vocational crisis. It was a spiritual crisis. It was a bad time. And so a friend said, "Why don't you go up to a monastery? Um, go up into Lexington and." go to uh, Gethsemane. And so I did. And I, uh, I, I was late, as always, and uh, there was a Ruby Tuesdays, and I was hungry, and I didn't know if I could eat. So I stopped, and I ate, had a hamburger, and I had a beer. Now, I don't drink much. Um, and when I do drink, it's usually a little bit. And the beer, was, for some reason, was a taller glass than uh, I normally would drink. And I've never been drunk in my life, but I think I got maybe too close that night. Uh, And uh, I thought, well, huh. Um, So uh, I drove anyway off to the monastery, got there an hour late, rang the bell. All the monks were in bed and uh, uh, smelling a little bit like beer uh, and cheeseburgers. Um, And this dear French monk came down, and his name was uh, Brother uh, Andre. I'll never forget him. And, and I said, I am just so sorry. I could tell he'd been asleep. I mean, they get up at three. And, uh, and he said, we're just glad you're here. And he took the key, and he walked me to my, to my room. And um, I went up there, and, and, and they were full, and so I stayed on the monk's side rather than the normal side. And what that meant was I had to walk across the, uh, the balcony of the sanctuary to, to get to, to lunch or meals. Um, and the next day I woke up, and I walked across the sanctuary, and I look at this beautiful uh, cross and Christ on it, and this horrible voice filled me, and, and I said, F you. It filled me with rage, 
and internally I yelled F you at the cross. And uh, I was horrified. I thought, what kind of hell am I descending into here? For the next two days, every time I walked across, every time I would look at the cross, this voice would well up and say, F you. So finally, I, I went to one of the monks. His name was Brother Benedict. And I said, I, I think I'm going crazy here. Can, I, can you talk to me about this? And so this dear monk met with me for uh, many hours. He helped me kind of process some of the anger that I was experiencing about where I was in my life. The 40s, that turning 40 thing is, 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 can be tough. And uh, he said, I got an idea for you. They've got this huge woods outside of the monastery, you know, thousands of acres. He said, I want you to go out in the woods and have it out with God. And, uh, and I did. Went way, way out in the woods. And uh, boy, I said things to God. I, I can't believe I said, but he was big enough to hear it. And uh, by the time we were done, we'd made our peace. And uh, I was able to walk through the sanctuary and, and, and worship again. And at the end of the retreat, and again, this was before All Souls was even born, but I think we were starting, I was starting to talk to John Wood about being involved and things like that. I just, I just remember being overwhelmed by the hospitality of that place and how, in a sense, it had saved my soul at a very dark time in my life. And I wanted to be a part of a church in the city that would extend that same kind of welcome to our neighbors and to our guests. And I don't know what that looks like for us. Uh, I think we try real hard in a lot of ways. But one of the things I'd like to look at this summer is just how can we continue to grow in offering our neighbor a place at the table? Now, let me end with this. We, we should do this now that we're here. Before we talk about being hospitable everywhere else, have you, have you accepted the invitation to the table? It's interesting, uh, Jay was pointing out to me earlier in the evening, just a lot of Jesus' teaching are stories about hospitality and invitations to great parties that are rejected. And I know maybe you're thinking, well, I got this problem and this question and uh, I'm concerned about this and I haven't solved this. And Okay, we can deal with that. But I think at the core of the gospel is an invitation to come to the house of love and telling you that you no longer have to dance alone. Uh, it is kind of, kind of a painful some nights at the, at the, at the dance studio because there's always a few people on the edges that never come in. And they look very lonely and, and left out. And I think when the gospel talks about repentance, I think what it means is, is that I'm saying, you know, I'm tired of kind of making up my own dance and doing this all by myself. I'm actually going to learn the dance of the house of love. Let's pray.